I'm Patty Patterson, and I am a professor of pediatrics at Texas Tech. Um, and uh, for the last 10 years, most of my time has been spent as a child abuse pediatrician. I do child abuse pretty much full time, and I'm the only board certified child abuse doc between, well, in all of West Texas and Eastern New Mexico. So I do lots of stuff. And uh, this has all kind of taken a different turn because of a phone call I got not too long ago. That's Tommy. And uh, Tommy, uh, he came in in April of 1984 in the UTMB Galveston. And I was a resident there. I think I was the senior resident on the floor. Before I wasn't, I was an intern. Um, but he came in, and this is—he's going home here, so he's—he looks great here. But he had—he uh, was severely, just severely malnourished, ribs sticking out. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you awful stories and stuff and show you bad pictures. So chill out. Um, well, things that I think are bad. Uh, he had probably 12, 14 broken bones in his body. Uh, bruises all over, and uh, I mean, this was not a diagnostic dilemma, he was abused, but you kind of go through and look at everything because there can be other reasons for kids not to grow. He was, and he was tiny. Uh, and um, when I, uh, we had to draw our own blood back then, so I, when I stuck him to draw the, the blood, he didn't cry. And I just remember him vividly. He just, he, he, he had his, kind of mouth closed, kind of made an mmm sound, some tears, but he would not cry, which told me that he probably got hit every time he cried. And uh, I just fell in love with him, and he really impacted the way I think about everything. And um, kind of got me started on, on taking care of abused kids. And when I had time off, or was you know at the end of the day, or lunch, or whatever, I just go and find him, get him out of his crib, and hold him, and we just rocked. And every night on call, we just rocked. And I took care of him for a while in the uh, on the floor, and then when he was discharged, I put him in my continuity clinic, and he was discharged to a foster family, and uh, followed up up for a few times, got to see him grow some. Got to see him. Uh, finally, one day he hit. When he came to the clinic, he hid behind his foster mom. Like, yes, he's bonding with her. Perfect. And uh, then they shifted and went to, to a pediatrician closer to their home. And I didn't hear from. I knew nothing about what had happened to Tommy. I thought about him a million times. You know, did he stay in that foster home? Did they adopt him? Did he go back to the people who hurt him because foster care was, uh, or the CPS system, there was huge problems about then. Had huge budget cuts and they weren't able to, to do the things they were supposed to do. You know, did he go back and get killed? Did he, uh, you know, did he make it through school? Did he end up in prison? I mean, what happened to Tommy? I don't know. I'd never heard from him. So he really sent me on the path of, you know, what about these kids? And I thought a lot, and particularly after I'd done this full time for a couple of years, I'm like, you know, we're pulling kids out of the fire, but they're still a mess. And also after Tommy, back in 1998, a paper was published in the uh, Preventive Medicine Journals about the adverse childhood experiences. And that set me on a completely different path as well. One of the things I've thought about, and I've done recently, is read through the Psalms through the eyes of an abused child. Try it sometime. Well, or don't. Um, but I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they uh, surround me like a flood, and they have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from the friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And this reminds me of a lot of the kids I've taken care of. Well, I mentioned the 1998 paper, and that paper changed a lot for me about looking at what happens to kids long-term. Adverse childhood experiences, I've, I've thrown some just good pictures in here because a lot of this is pretty depressing. And this is just, uh, I think, really fascinating. Um, Kaiser Permanente down in San Diego uh, has 
It's a huge, huge HMO. They have just boatloads of data. And a guy named Dr. Folletti was doing a clinic for morbidly obese people, people who weighed more than 100 pounds over their ideal body weight. And then time goes on, and people start dropping out. He goes, hey, what's up with this? So he looked at their records, and some of these people who were dropping out were, in fact, losing weight. He goes, well, that's weird. So they talked to these people, and through that interview process, found out that a lot of the people who were losing weight had been and dropped out had been particularly sexually abused as children. And so he got this idea of, wait a minute, what if... What we're thinking is the problem is the solution for that person, which was genius uh, on his part. So he worked with the people at the uh, CDC, which they're really good at epidemiologic studies because that's what they do, and they put together a study. Uh, the initial study had over 17,000 people in it. Uh, for any researchy types, I may be the only one in here. That's huge, that's very powerful, it's exactly what you need, okay, to, to be able to determine things. And so they just went down, and it was people that had been in their clinic, who had had physical exams and stuff, they had their medical records, they sent, uh, after the uh, clinic visit, sent them these questionnaires saying, uh, in your 18, first 18 years of life, did any of these things happen to you? It's, the whole thing is on the CDC website. Just Google CDC, ACE, a space or two, CDC, and you'll get, you can even pull the instruments they use. And it's like in 18, in your first 18 years of life, you know, did anybody uh, hit you such that you were injured uh, uh, in sexual abuse, including molestation, and it has all the, the things. Um, did you witness somebody hitting your, your mom? Uh, was somebody in your house using drugs? Uh, or uh, I think alcoholics and what? This has morphed over time. Divorce or separate. Was anybody in your house arrested? So all these adverse childhood experiences. And uh, they found a couple of things. One is that these are incredibly common. Okay? That... And this is, you'll hear that one in four girls and one in six boys have been uh, abused, sexually abused as children. That's where this comes from. Uh, not, actually, I've seen that in some of the other uh, talks here, that stat. That's, this is where it comes from. That almost a third, there were substance abusers, or substance abuse in the house, uh, street drugs, alcohol. Uh, living with dep uh, mentally ill people, particularly depression on this one. Uh, this, 13, 12% had witnessed their mother being hurt. Um, almost 5% had a parent had gone to prison, gone to jail, which my population is half. But, um, and the separation and divorce, which turns out to be the least strong of all these. A uh, couple things to remember about this study. It doesn't cover all adverse childhood experiences. There are very bad things that happen to you that aren't on this list, okay? Dad being deported is not on this list. Or community violence, seeing you know, your next door neighbor shot isn't on this list. So what they did, again, genius, was put those together into what they called an ACE score. So if you had, um, I guess I could use the, well, I'm used to the So if you had, uh, and the thought was that in the most part, physical abuse doesn't have, happen in a warm and loving environment. So you're probably not going to just have that. You could you probably also have emotional abuse. Or, you know, if if everybody in your house is you know schizophrenic, well then you're going to probably have other things. So they created an ACE score out of it, um, and they came up with, you know, over a third, 36 percent had a, a zero. A quarter had a one, 16% two, nine five, and then uh, an eight had a score of four or more. And this is looking, okay, a couple things to remember. This is people looking back 50 years, okay? Uh, I, I have lots of kids with four or more who are six years old, okay? 
So as those kids get older, that score is likely to go up. The other thing to remember, these were people who were insured by Kaiser. Okay? This is not folks on Medicaid. It is not folks who are unemployed. These are people with jobs or somebody in the family has a job and they're on Kaiser. So they're at a higher socioeconomic stat standard uh, than you know, a, a, a portion of the population. So, but, so they added those up. Then they looked at the questionnaires. And so if they looked at, and they, they knew what the people weighed, and they could calculate their body mass index, and so they found that 4.6 or so percent, uh, if they had no ACEs, were obese, but as a BMI over 35, I think, yeah, morbid obese, and it had 1, 2, 3, up to 12 percent, okay? Well, anybody see a pattern? <laughs> okay, so well, and that's where we all started. That's where Filetti started with this. Filetti and Anda is the, the dude's name. Uh, okay, well, what about smoking? Well, oh my goodness. It does the same thing. From 6% uh, uh, to 16%. So, two and a half times as much what likelihood age? of smoking. What age is that? These are people that are over 18, but, but it was who are presently smoking. So a lot of, uh, probably most of them are in their 50s when this is surveyed. So they're smoking, and everybody knows smoking's bad for you. Well, so the risk factors are there. What about the actual diseases? They're there too. So IHD is ischemic heart disease, so heart attacks goes up. Strokes does the same thing. This is the dark purpose of strokes. And lung disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They talk about it on the news all the time with, with you know, ask your doctor for the stroke. So the same, exact same pattern. In fact, maybe a little bit more dramatic. Um, and then in, in these studies where they looked at the um, disease outcomes, behavior didn't account for all of it. It only accounted for about half of it. So on top of the smoking. Okay, so uh, this one is the percentage who consider themselves to be an alcoholic. Anybody who does clinical work knows that this is a really no, low number. People don't tell you that they're alcoholics, right? You can always, you know, we always just say tell what they, kind of guess, tell whatever they tell you, double it. May be true, may, maybe not, but people don't just usually come in and tell you they do a case of beer or whatever. So, 6% um, or so, if they had no ACEs, almost 30. So, five times as high, four to five times as high. Because, uh, or, you know, and it's, it's a correlation, okay? This is going to get more redundant, okay? Illicit drugs. That's mostly pot, I think, which. I've been told many times by my, the parents of my patients, it's not illegal everywhere. Like, well, it's illegal here. Um, and I actually am seeing a lot more because it's uh, medical marijuana in New Mexico. Where it's illegal. There's all kinds of little shops and hops in all my favorite places. Goes from 3% of a five-fold increase if they've ever used illicit drugs. Well, and then what happens on injected? Injectable drugs, um, tenfold basically, tenfold increase in injectable drugs, and all this is I mean, that correlation. Right. Not saying that everybody who's abused as a kid ends up injecting drugs, but it's a risk. Okay. That's the way epidemiology works. Okay. Well, what about mental health, depression? Um, triples, at least, yeah, about three and a half times as much for depression. And you think of the billions of dollars spent in our country on depression. You take depression on out and suicide risk. Purple bars are kids, green bars are adults, and obviously the green bar is going to be higher because people have had longer you know, there's more years of their life in which they've committed suicide. Attempted. These are attempts, not completions. Um, I'm on a, uh, we call the Child Fatality Review Team. 
where we go over every child death within our region uh, every quarter. And um, I don't think I've ever done one that didn't have at least one child suicide. I think this last time the youngest was 12. Um, but it goes from nothing, almost, to 13, 14%. So huge, huge risk. And I, basically, anytime I, I see a suicide attempt kiddo come into our ICU, I tell them not call me. We need to figure out if that kid's being abused. And then the adults goes from you know, maybe one two percent up to twenty four percent. I mean, doesn't that number blow your mind? Mm -hmm. That that many people would have attempted. And I don't I don't remember exactly how they define that. Uh, the mental health people uh, liken um, child abuse to mental health as doctors do cigarette smoking to physical health. Without cigarettes, things, yes ma'am. Can you say that again? They like it. Liken child abuse in, in mental health to cigarettes in physical health. You know, without tobacco, you know, it eliminates or just dr drastically reduces Lung disease, uh, all that stuff. Heart disease, all that. So, uh, it's a, as they put it, the leading preventable risk factor for mental illness and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. um, on another behavior, um, the risky sexual behaviors. This is uh, initiation of sex before they're 15 goes from 4% to 31 so eightfold increase in 30 or more sexual partners. And obviously that's going to correlate directly with sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, chlamydia, all that stuff. All that madness. And of course, you know, this somebody with all these is, you know, could very well be doing a lot of other risky stuff with substance abuse and so forth. So you go from one percent to thirteen percent. So thirteenfold increase on that one. Um, this is my all-time favorite slide. I use this all the time in Lubbock where we have an astronomical teen pregnancy rate. I always have. Uh, any science people in here? That is, uh, this is not by chance is what that means, okay? Yeah. That, okay. There's a one in, what, 100,000? There's seven million. One in a whole bunch. Uh, chance, or th that's due to chance. I mean, um. th that's that's real. So, uh, teen pregnancy. This is 11 to 19, and actually, um, this one is just on girls. There are studies that uh, boys are also more likely to father kids if they've been abused as, little, as a teenager, if they were abused as, as they were young. Okay. Um, and then thinking about, well, what about us? And I, I know there may be some people who work with kids in here a lot and are interested in it, but I'm also thinking about what about people at our churches or people that we're working with? Um, 13 to 17% of the population has an A score of four or more. So there's probably, you know, folks, maybe, I, it never fails after I do this talk with medical students, somebody comes and talks to me. Um, last Friday, I went to the burn unit to see a child, started talking to the mom. Um, I always ask them about their history, too. Uh, it's an eight-month-old that was hurt. But when I started talking to her, I said, well, you know, my dad's in prison. I'm like, oh, really? What happened? And people tell you when you ask them, or they do me. Um, well, you know, he was, put, he was in prison for um, um, sexually molesting a child. I go, was it you? She goes, yes. And as we finished that, was walking, my medical student was with me, we're walking back up to my office, and she just tells me, she's like, yeah, I remember your talk. Uh, when I was a first year, she's like, my score's eight. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm trying to get packed and leave, so, but you, know, you can't just drop that one. Mm -hmm. So we talk a while. Um, and uh, lifespan is 20 years shorter in people with... Uh, a score of six or more. Well, and I mean, look backwards, you know. No, suicide, yeah, then a score of zero versus an A score of six or more. 
the lifespan. Because uh, see that the, the studies in uh, San Diego were done. Probably the data was gathered in around 1990. So we're 28 years out from that. So they're they're getting mortality data as that comes in, and they they've continued following that. Okay. Well, the big question then is why. Um, so I tell the students. That ACEs stuff is true. Um, we'll tell you a lot of stuff that's in medical school that's not true. This is true. It's been repeated in numerous countries and cultures around the world. They've run it over different decades in the United States. It's held over time. It's held over cultures. I mean, Turkey and you know, just Japan, different places. It, it holds. Okay. Uh, there's different different definitions of what abuse is. There, some of the studies have been different, but you get the same graph pattern no matter where. So it's true. Well, then the next question comes in, well, why? I mean, why does it work that way? And um, I think that's a great question. So um, there's a couple of, of, well, I'll go through several things. Um, and I put this one in for Kathy, the elementary school principal over there. Uh, children with four more ACEs were 32 times as likely to have been diagnosed with their learning or behavior problem. And what that one strikes me as a pediatrician is are the kids that are coming in to get their ADHD meds, is it really ADHD? It might be. It very well might be. Or is it trauma? Is, is, is it their house? Okay. Can be, can be either. And uh, we actually have, I have people now on staff who can figure that out. Um, but you think about um, baby brains. I think about baby brains more than y'all probably do. But um, those first couple, three years of life are so important in development. And most, I mean, most of your neurons are there. I mean, you keep forming them, and there's a lot of plasticity there that we still not think was there, but your brain grows incredibly fast. When you take your baby or grandbaby to the pediatrician, they always measure the head. That's an indirect measure of brain growth. And then their heads are designed so they can grow fast. So um, when you've got that trauma in those little bitty kids, what's going on? So basically brains need experiences to develop right that's why neglect in little babies is so profound mm. uh, and i you know those are the kids i take care of all the time and uh, some of y'all foster and take care of so if the, i mean when you pick up a baby what do you do you make stupid faces you coo <laughs> i mean you act like a fool right i mean that's what you're supposed to do and that's designed that way for that baby to interact with you, to learn to interact with you, to learn how to make noises, to imitate uh, their focal uh, view. It's like when you hold them right there, that's exactly where they can focus. It's really cool. There's all kinds of really cool stuff about babies. Okay, and if, uh, if you don't get those experiences when you ought to be getting them, uh, I'm, this is probably a little bit more overdramatic that it may be lost. I, th I think it's more likely to be damaged. Um, I, I never cease to be amazed by what, what baby brains end up doing. Uh, Kathy has a grandbaby that's uh, horrific brain damage. I, I didn't think she would live, and she, she's five and she walks, so it's really cool. Um, a whole lot of this, you think about the stress that's going on. Um, that, this is a pediatrics terminology for it. I don't think the psychologists really like this very much. But there's kind of three types of stress that we uh, kind of categorize things at. Um, yeah, positive stress. I mean, kid, I mean, to not have stress is not good for you, right? Having too much stress is not good for you. But a kid needs to figure out how to, you know, work their way through problems, to do things, to, you know, choose 
are they going to share their Legos or not? You know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, I mean that that stress is normal. Teach and they need to learn how to uh, cope with that so they don't you know, decompensate the first time anything happens to them on the Pepperdine campus. Um, so normal, healthy, good stuff. So that's that one. I'm looking at the wrong slide here. Okay, tolerable stress. It's a big deal, but it's like grief. We have tolerable stress, even though it's profound. Natural disaster, the kids of Katrina. You know, the, but the important thing in that is it's time limited and it's, um, there's a, an adult who buffers it. Now, toxic stress, and this is a, a term that the psychologists really don't like, but the, to me it makes sense. It's strong, frequent, prolonged adversity, toxic stress. It can be neglect, uh, and it's the, without adequate adult support. It makes all the difference in the world. Bad stuff can happen to you, but if you've got a, a reliable adult, it makes all the difference in the world. And in these kiddos, a lot of times the, so, the supposedly or supposed to be reliable adult is the perpetrator. Okay, so that toxic stress, so you get, uh, and we'll, I'll go over, I'll unpack these in a little bit. So you get the stress response. So that, that's going on all the time. It can also disrupt your brain, the way your brain develops. Um, increases your risk for stress-related disease. It can affect your immune system. And... Uh, it can actually change the way your DNA is read and transcribed. And this is pretty new stuff. I, uh, these papers just start coming out in the last two or three years. Okay. Now, things to remember is that uh, individual responses vary. So, as I said, just because you've gotten a bad dose of this doesn't mean you're going to have bad outcomes. Uh, and that if kids have strong, secure relationships, their, even their physiologic responses to this, to stress, are going to be more controlled, going to be less bad. So, childhood trauma can mess with your brain. Now, when, say a bear, a grizzly walks in here. Say he walks over there so you can get to the door. Uh, what do you do, okay? You freeze or you're like, oh my. Your heart rate goes up really fast. Your blood pressure goes up. You're, actually, you get a glucose surge so you can run. Um, and so that's normal. That's, that, that's what's going to keep you. Yeah, yeah you just you, you shove Bailey in front of him. <laughs> uh, that's normal. That's good. That's protective, right? Okay. What if the bear lives in your house? So all these things are constantly going on. You're constantly getting those surges. You're constantly getting the cortisol. You're constantly getting the epinephrine. That's actually this slide. So um, I actually had fun trying to find these things. Uh, this one may actually be Pinterest, which I'm like, oh my. About <laughs> um, anything gross. So your brain pounds on your adrenal glands and your dream glands release epinephrine, which makes your heart go fast and all that, and also cortisol, okay? the stress hormones, cortisol. That's a good thing, except if you're releasing it all the time. So what, does, what happens when you get cortisol all the time? Any, any stress eaters in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. That's one of the things that pushes it, cortisol. And it can actually lead to diabetes. Interesting. Uh, so abnormal cortisol production, it can keep, even keep happening after they're moved. Uh, this is a study where the kids uh, were 10 to 16. Oh, and this is victims of child abuse have higher PTSD rate, post-traumatic stress disorder, have higher PTSD rates than combat veterans. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the combat veterans are getting shot out by an enemy. They're getting shot out by family. 
almost, well, most abuse is people you know. It's a family. So, uh, and then their, uh, they had their hippocampus, it's a, which is part of the limbic emotional system. They were smaller, and even after they were removed from the bad uh, environment, that, that continued to shrink. It's, we're learning a lot of stuff we didn't know earlier just because of the uh, uh, function, uh, functional MRIs and that kind of really cool stuff. It all lines up. So it affects, uh, trauma affects the uh, amygdala. That's the fear center. Uh, that, that part of your brain helps you identify threats in your environment. Uh, and a lot of the first work on that was in the Romanian orphans. And they found out that that, that that amygdala, it was big because it was always sensing fear. Okay, they're afraid all the time. Well, but if you're afraid all the time <coughs> and this thing gets big, then you get where you don't really um, determine well what, when you should be afraid and when you're not. So that's kind of dysregulated. Um, there's dysregulation of <coughs> part of the brain that uh, secretes what's uh, noradrenaline. It's like adrenaline from your kidneys. That increases uh, anxiety. It messes up sleep cycles. Um, increases anxiety, arousal, aggression. The uh, part of the prefrontal cortex, we always laugh about, you know, frontal lobe not developed in adolescence. It's true. Uh, but this makes it worse. Uh, prefrontal cortex of reasoning, judgment, planning, decision making, and social control. Um, the hippocampus, which is the, the kind of the seat of memory, forming short-term and long-term memories. It messes with that. And also, the, another area, um, I just call it the Las Vegas area, it's where, um, it's where dopamine works. And dopamine is the feel-good hormone, like feel-really-good hormone. It's, it, it's they can actually have to get more and more of the dopamine, so the risk-taking and the addictions and so forth. It's kind of the thing that keeps triggering for addiction. Okay, you may be wondering why I have rats in here. Um, a lot of this stuff, of course, you can't do with uh, human pups. You have to do it with rat pups. They've done uh, several interesting things. Uh, they stressed out the mama rats, and then the baby rats that came from the stressed out mamas uh, were more fearful and had impaired brain abilities. And that study's fairly old. Um, they put they had good mama rats and bad mama rats. I mean, a good mama rat licks their baby and grooms them, and you know, does that you know good mama rat thing. And the other mama rats were not high groomers. They just kind of left. They just let their baby rats do the thing. Well, those baby rats grew up being nervous and, and not well-adjusted like the well-groomed baby rats. Well, then they did this experiment where they switched the babies. So the, the babies from born to good mamas were given to the bad mamas and vice versa. And so that the, the babies that were licked and groomed and so forth they're, they actually looked more like the, the rats born to good moms. It was a, it's a nature-nurture thing. So, and okay, now wait a minute. You know, if, if we pass it down and it goes to the next line, well, shouldn't, shouldn't that genetics keep going? Well, it turns out it doesn't necessarily. How's that happen? I mean, what is going on that that, that there's a change there. There's a couple things. One, baby rats who are licked and groomed and everything, they release serotonin, which is a natural antidepressant. It's kind of like rat pup Prozac, okay? <laughs> so it makes it feel better. But it actually activates changes in the DNA. So we get to the subcellular. Though, and this is, this is new research. And don't ask me how this happens. I, I have a picture in a moment that probably off of Pinterest too that doesn't explain it terribly well. But so it ultimately changes their DNA, leading to later life changes in response to stress. So and it's true in humans too. Okay. That the there's a you've got your you, you remember from seventh grade science or whatever it was that you had chromosomes and stuff? 
or Dr. Estep's class, chromosomes in the, uh, well, there's actually another whole layer above them called the epigenome. I think my next one's a, it's kind of a picture of that. It's just stuff wrapped around it, and that is, tells the DNA, it turns on and off the DNA, okay? And at the end of this, these little, it's, it doesn't show it on this one, but there's little bumpers at the end called telomeres that keep the DNA from being messed with. And in people who are, uh, kids who are stressed, they've done it looking at people, all kinds of people with PTSD. If their abuse was in adulthood, it's not messed with. If it was early childhood, those are shorter than they're supposed to be. So it changes all the way back there. Um, I don't know much about histone modification, but they, they also, they, these little methylation groups mess up the transcription of the DNA. Um, again, this is really super early research on this, but it's more than just get it together. And you know, I think we've all worked with people who are really, really hard to help. Uh, that frontal lobe just does not work. And this has helped me understand why. Uh, I'm, it's not maybe that it can never work, but I think it takes, it takes a lot more patience on my part, uh, which I'm really not good at sometimes. Um, so there's all kinds of results from this, and, and you know, people are different. Kids are just, they, they blow me away as to how resilient they are. You know, I'll be in the hospital with some kid with the shaken baby syndrome, and you know, grandma's like, well, you know, can you tell me, you know, kind of a prognosis like yeah you know, I, I I just tell them I've given up doing that I mean joy is one of the reasons I've done that but I don't know you know what babies can do I mean I had a little guy in my practice it wasn't uh, child abuse but he it was from a congenital thing where he had hydrocephalus he had just a little teensy rim of brain the rest of it was just water in the middle he walks he talks he's cute I mean he's, he's not normal but he's Man, I never would have picked that. So, you know, what the future is, I don't know. So, you know, kids are amazing. Some do great. High resilience, do awesome. Um, some are a mess uh, that have been abused. I mean, uh, I went to the thing yesterday or the day before. It was a CNN correspondent who's done, or I guess she's a contractor, who has interviewed death row inmates and terrorists and all kinds of people who, you know, almost universally those folks were, at least the death row inmates were abused as kids. Or, you know, Charles Manson was left on the street when he was five by his mom. Uh -huh. So you can, you can be, do great, you can be Charles Manson, <laughs> or just who knows, everything in between. So, uh, on the DNA, that being uh, altered, does that get passed down to the next generation? That's what they're thinking, that it, it may. But the grooming behavior, so if, if the human pups mm -hmm. have a good mom, mm -hmm. it can overcome that. And actually, some of it can revert to normal, that those methylation patterns don't persist on down. Mm -hmm. Chances are, if it's the girl that's abused, and she doesn't understand that grooming need and when she right. becomes a mom then it just kind of perpetuates it, itself down right that's that's uh, one of the things that I see a lot of wow. yeah okay uh, the rest of the story about a month ago um, one of the admin people in the department goes there's this guy who's been trying to reach you Okay, she goes, so I don't know, here's the name, and I, I know who that is, it was Tommy. And, uh, and so I tried to call him, and just, I didn't come through in a minute, she's like, he's calling again, like, put him through, put him through. Um, Tommy was adopted by the foster parents. Um, he uh, made it through school, he said, I do have ADHD. I'm like, well, yeah, you deserve that. Uh, yeah. Um, he works full-time as a, I think, mechanic or... Uh, 
Yeah, he's, a, he's some mechanic guy at school. Maintenance guy at school. Um, he has four kids. This He sent me this, I think last Sunday. It's him with his brand new baby girl. Um, he, uh, the way he found me was he was he'd gone to Galveston to get his medical records because he, he knew he had a sister and he was trying to find, and he, he knew he had an uncle. So he was trying to find his family. And he found them. And he found in his medical records, he found uh, that the attending was Dr. Gustafson, found out that she had passed on. and But he found my name in there, so he Googled me. And found me at Texas Tech, called the pediatrics department. And uh, he sent me pictures of, that first picture, uh, his foster mom had taken of us. Uh, that was me and my white shoulder. Um, and uh, he uh, gave permission to use this. And uh, he's really uh, excited to help maybe other folks be interested in fostering and adopting because his story came out good. Um, that's my contact email. And if you want to find the, I just Google. I mean, people say, what's the child abuse hotline? I don't know. I Google. So just if you want to Google it, that's where all those, you can kind of get started. There's, there are thousands and thousands of VA studies now. Um, so, how does this apply to us and the folks on the pew with you, the folks you're counseling, the, I mean, you know, um, we used to do a lot of work with the homeless. Um, they were all, had all been wretched, wretched childhoods. Well, why don't you just get a job? Well, I can't remember the order when I work at you know, Sonic wants me to remember the order. Well, okay, well, you know, are there tools we can give you? Can we help you with that? Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of this conference is going across the street and helping folks and going into the darkness, and you're going to find these folks in the darkness. I mean, and you're going to find them beside you. I mean, like that medical student with a score of eight. I've had a, a, another guy that uh, actually ended up dropping out of medical school because, uh, well, first I, we worked with him to, uh, because he needed to get out in order to, he had, the folks I see in medical school had never dealt with their stuff. And so uh, a lot of, you know, it's not, I bet one a year, it's like, okay, you need to stop doing medicine, medical school and <clears throat> go do your therapy and work your way through this before you can ever do, before you can do this. And when I said something to you about the girl that had an eight, well, she has done really well for herself. Mm -hmm. that, that's one of the way people compensate, though, is by being overachievers. Mm -hmm. So if the smart smart folks, you know, I'm going to prove that. So we end up with some of them. So it doesn't mean you're healthy. Right, that doesn't mean you're healthy at all. It means you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> and you study a lot. Yeah. But, you know, it, I guess that probably their whole lives is, have done that mm -hmm. to you know, prove their worth. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we so see them all the time. How can the church help? What can the church do? I think just the families. Yeah, I think just knowing this would be super helpful to anybody who's trying to work with um, people who are coming for help. To know to look for this. I mean, I've got. I'm, I just flat out ask people about. I mean, there's there's little screening. Uh, you know, in my practice, I ask people now. Uh, we're, in fact, I think we're going to implement in our practice that the four-month well check. We're going to do this with all the moms uh, to help us pick up, you know, which kids are at risk, and maybe and we've hired a social worker to maybe help help us with this stuff. Um, I think uh, I think knowing it helps a lot in just how to work with people. Um, communicate with people. Be involved. Yeah. You get involved. Well, and yeah. um, you know, I find people all the time who've never, ever, ever talked about this. The um, if you run into someone, yeah, you, you question them, you find out that they have had an abusive past, um, especially if they have children or if they're a young child. Mm -hmm. What that? What are what kind of counseling resource would you send them to? 
I would, the children, I would be sure that they're doing what's called evidence-based treatments. There's a lot of stuff out there that's not. Uh, what we use in our center mostly is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. We also do, um, uh, it's not me, we, but the psychologists and the, the uh, LPCs do uh, parent-child interactive therapy. And um, one of the probably most excited about, or very excited about, is uh, problematic sexual behavior with kids under 18. Uh, we have lots of 12-year-old boys who are perpetrators, 12, 13-year-old. Or actually, that's one of the reasons kids will bust out of uh, foster placements. Mm -hmm. uh, and kindergartners just, you know, kindergarten teachers sort of flip out, you know, with this kind of behavior. Um, they, it's, for kids, for teenagers, it's a 95% success rate. Wow. Because in pediatrics, you have focused behavior. <coughs> you know, sexual behavior, not sexual behavior. That's what I'm uh, it's a completely different approach than with yeah. adults. And, um, you know, anytime I see, you know, at our meetings, like, oh, yeah, the perp was 12, well, what happened to him? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe nothing, but I'd say 90% plus something happening. Mm -hmm. Or uh, the other thing I see huge, huge impact on is porn, mm -hmm. where kids are seeing stuff they should not see. Absolutely. So you're saying you have a high success rate when behaviors are addressed early? Mm-hmm. We start at three. Uh, they'll do other things before three, but the real, the real heavy-duty stuff, we start at three. But I, I turn all that to the psychologist. And I've got the, uh, the head of our center, it's called the Center for Superheroes, is a child and adolescent forensic psychologist. So his specialty is, is child trauma. You know, Penny, knowing some of this, and I learned more today, but... I practiced on her, so. <laughs> And she's, she's taking care of one of my now grandbabies, so. Um, but thinking instead of, what is wrong with you? Whether it's from the education field or whether it's from the foster kids that we've had or whatever, it's more like, what's happened to you? Right. Rather than what's wrong with you, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? So you've been doing this for quite a while. Yes. You mentioned the porn and the, I mean that's the technology and all that kind of thing. Um, Twenty years ago, I guess you would. I, I guess, but, but even something new. You said the DNA. Is something yeah, all that new. stuff's new. I mean, it, it, it was know, happening, and we just didn't know it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the grooming and the other things to help overcome that at least to, in the next generation? Mm -hmm. you, um, well, I think, well, you know, a lot of foster kids, for example, I mean, foster kids on the whole do better with a family placement. However, you know, they, you've got to have a competent adult somewhere. And, you know, lots of our families, there's just nobody there. I mean, grandma's smoking crack, mama's smoking crack, it's just everywhere. So, um, you know, some of these kids just, they do great. It's a good, good stable home. Is it a problem placing kids in a uh, good foster home? Um, actually, um, Kathy's son has been a leader in our community. We're doing some awesome stuff. And it's the churches. And this is one of the things churches can do. Um, we had, I guess, the first interest meeting we had on foster care, we had over 200 people there. And it wasn't all just, we're going to foster. It was people said, yeah, we think we've got room. We're interested. But it was all other people like, you know, I can't do that. But I will, my family will learn how to be a respite. Because you can't just leave a foster kid with anybody because your next door neighbor may be some pervert. So, you know, they've got to have background checks to babysit. And so they became certified as respite providers. And then we have uh, a group that does kind of welcome wagon. Anytime there's a new foster kid brought into any of our families, they take a basket of age-appropriate stuff, whether it's diapers or toys or clothes or whatever. And then um, the first Friday of every month, we do a foster parent night out. My job is to hold babies. We have like 60 or 80 kids come to the building. And uh, 
and we provide, and we all have to have background checks and all that stuff, and we do, uh, we just love on kids and play with them and let the foster parents have a three hour break to go to a movie. And they can leave their biological yeah, kids Yeah, they leave their biological kids there too. Um, but it's, um, it, we're really doing it as a community that is, you know, to do this by yourself, I think it's extremely hard, but all together, you know, we're, we're committed to helping. It's not just our congregation, more than Trinity Christian, se several others in town, maybe Raintree, yeah. are also doing it. Um, so it's becoming a coalition of folks to support these kids. And they increased the number of foster homes by 40% in one year. Wow. They're making people aware. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a lot of it. I'm doing a, a panel thing on Tuesday night with uh, some elected officials. Um, I've been to the Junior League to, which they're, you know, I'm not really a junior league kind of person, but I went to I've been and talked to them twice. So, yeah. Um, what's your opinion or experience um, on the use of medications with children to help them with being calm? Okay. Um, sometimes you need them. I think it's the last. It's it's not the first thing. The first thing you need is a calm parent <laughs> uh, and behavior modification. You, uh, mostly, most often, it's a parenting issue that the parent you have to teach the parents how to parent and do timeout and all those little things. Um, and then uh, there are some kids that need meds. Uh, most of what we found uh, in the Center for Superheroes, who've been I think going about two years, is that we take kids off meds. Because, and they're on them before you come? Yeah, they're on them when they get to us. We take them off and, and do uh, the behavioral therapies with them, and, and they're able to manage. And some of them, you know, they need a little boost to be able to calm down and focus. And, but we're, um, you know, when you have a five-year-old diagnosed as bipolar, they are not bipolar. Trust me. They're abused. Almost always. So we take, we take kids off of meds more than putting them on. Then we have a child, child and adolescent forensic psychiatrist who also helps me. So, Sarah, I got a five-year-old who's suicidal. What do I do? That happened? Yes. I mean, she had a plan. The whole deal. Sarah. <laughs> Ew. Okay. Well, thank y'all for coming. Thank you. You want to learn something else?